This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we're going to look at the momentous upheaval in Israel. The fourth election in two years has finally been resolved, at least for the moment, with the end of Benjamin Netanyahu's 12-year reign, Israel's longest-serving prime minister. A consummate and corrupt opportunist, Netanyahu unleashed a major shock and awe campaign against Gaza for 11 days last month, as well as in November 2019, and some would say, to deflect attention from his own legal problems and his inability to form a governing coalition. In this respect, Thomas Friedman has written that Netanyahu and Hamas have needed each other for each to remain in power and prevent a more moderate coalition from destroying their respective positions in power. Neftali Bennett, a far-right leader of the tiny Yamina or rightward party, will now be prime minister for two years, yielding then to his secular centrist coalition partner, Yair Lapid, for the next two years. Netanyahu, facing criminal corruption charges, warns he'll be back. We're going to talk to Yoav Pelled to clarify what all of this means. He's the author most recently of The Religionization of Israeli Society, which couldn't be timelier to explain the dynamics of nationalism and religion in Israel, both among Muslims and Jews. We're going to get Yoav's analysis and look at the ways this conflict reflects political trends in the wider world. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and really pleased to have Yoav Pellet back with us. He's Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Tel Aviv University in Israel, where he joins us, staying up late. And his latest book, written with Horit Herman Pellet, is The Religionization of Israeli Society. And his other books include Being Israeli, The Dynamics of Multiple Citizenship, and Israel and Palestine, Alternative Perspectives on Statehood. And this book, The Religionization of Israeli Society, Yoav tells me, had as its original title, From Ben-Gurion to Bennett, but that was nixed by the publisher because no one knew who Bennett was. Well, I think that's going to change now. The book sheds light on how the country has moved from secular Zionism to an increasingly far-right expansionist religious Zionism, and how Understanding that helps us understand this election, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the relation between everything else, culture, politics, nationalism, secularization, and new social movement. So welcome, Yoav, to Jacobin Radio. And I want to just begin because you write that an anti-Zionist Islamist political party was willing to forsake the cause of Palestinian nationalism, at least for the moment, in return for various material concessions from a right-wing Israeli government, while an ultra-nationalist religious Jewish political party was willing to sabotage the attempt to form the most extremely Jewish nationalist government in Israel's history by refusing to cooperate with an Arab party, even in its most minimal way. And of course, I guess you could say that Netanyahu was saved by Hamas, as you do in your book, By the Rocket Attack. So there's a lot to unpack. And Yoav, I'm really glad I have you here to help us understand it. Thank you for having me. Well, Uh, let's just begin with how do you see this election and the new coalition with Neftali Bennett alternating with Yair Lapid? Well, I don't think the alternation will will ever come about. I don't think this uh, government will last two years. Because, uh, as as you know, as I'm sure uh, your listeners also know, 
this government has a majority of two in the Knesset. And these two include four members of this uh, Islamist political party called the United Arab List, which was before perfectly willing to go with Netanyahu, except, like you said, the more extreme right-wing religious nationalist party that calls itself religious Zionism, vetoed that. And that's why this uh, United Arab List went with the current coalition. But that's very fragile. For example, next week, there will come uh, the need to renew a temporary order which prevents Palestinians from the West Bank, as well as citizens of other Arab countries, marrying Israeli citizens, namely Palestinians who are Israeli citizens. This law has been on the book as a temporary order since uh, 2003, I think, and it's coming up for renewal every year because it's a temporary order. Now, this Islamist party will not vote for an extension of this temporary order. It's out of the question. So this government will not have a majority unless some people from the right-wing opposition helps them get this uh, through one more time. So here you see the tension explosion that are uh, within this uh, very strange coalition that ranges from very, very extreme right to sort of very liberal and including an Islamist political party. So there's a lot right in there. Maybe you can talk about, you just said that that it's very fragile, this coalition, and you have doubts already that it won't last. But before we get to that, are you saying as well that you don't think that it'll be able to enact any kind of legislation that would boost its popularity or maybe, you know, break through the kind of divide that has existed thus far or for the last 12 years? It will be very hard. Maybe they will succeed in some things, but it will be very hard because there are very, very deep divisions within that coalition, and it's very unusual. And now uh, we also have to remember that the prime minister, for the first time in Israel's history, has behind him a party of only six members. (laughs) So he's very weak. He's very weak within his own coalition. So I'm not saying they will not be able to enact anything, but I think everything that's somewhat controversial within this very multicolored coalition will be very difficult to, to pass through. I guess, Yoav, that we should go into who Bennett is and then go back to looking at both the populism and the Israeli variant, let's say, of populism and then religious nationalism. But, you know, I alerted you earlier to an article that appeared in the New York Times that is basically saying, let's not judge him too quickly. Uh, Neftali Bennett may come from a small right-wing party, but he's got this subtle and sophisticated mind that he's a rigorous thinker. And it, I guess it sort of implied that he is more flexible than people have imagined. And of course, I'm sure you have your own take on that. But let's talk a little bit about who he is and what he represents. You've already said that he comes from a tiny party, but he's managed to be, you know, the person now, you know, that will be the prime minister. Yes, well, uh, let's talk about him personally for a minute. Personally, he's very much like Bibi, like Netanyahu. That's interesting and strange. Like Netanyahu, he was born in Israel, but grew up in the United States. His parents went to Berkeley, were active in the civil rights movement, then made the Shuva, in other words, became religious Jews, went to Israel, then returned to the United States where he grew up, then returned to Israel again. So you already see this kind of a background. 
but he himself has always been very right-wing. He was director general of what is called the Yesha Council. Yesha Council is the organization that represents all of the local authorities, the Jewish local authorities in the West Bank, and before that in Gaza too. When he was there, it was in Gaza too. So uh, his record and his activities, they're all very much right-wing. There is another faction that's even to the right of him. That's the one that calls itself now religious Zionism. So compared to them, he's moderate, but this moderation is very, very, very uh, limited, I would say. How do you characterize this religious Zionism? I know you've written, a, you know, more than a book on it and and also your article in Merup. Well, we have to distinguish between two things which can get confused here. There is the historical movement called religious Zionist, but was never called religious Zionism. It had all kinds of different names. Politically, for most of the years after the establishment of Israel, they were called the National Religious Party. So there was no party called religious Zionism, but religious Zionism was a stream within Zionism, and for most of its history was more moderate politically than the mainstream Zionist political parties. This changed in 1967 with settlements and all of that. Now, the party that now calls itself religious Zionism is more extreme nationalistically and more extreme religiously. And I think it would be quite fair to say, to characterize it as uh, at least certain elements in it as proto-fascist. Okay, proto-fascist. All right. But you, well, is there a populist aspect to the religious Zionist movement? Well, certainly not historically. Certainly not historically. And in that sense, Bennett continues the historical course of the mainstream religious Zionist uh, movement, except, of course, that is politically the right wing, and they were not until 1967. But historically, religious Zionist movement within Zionism was very much a bourgeois political movement, very, I would say, uh, kind of state, maybe, that is the right word for, for it. What was the word? I didn't hear it. State, S-T-A-I-D. Yeah, okay. You no, know, a respectable, respectable uh, middle-class families, moderate in every respect, and so on. I, I remember, I can still remember, we were next-door neighbors of the leader of the religious, historical religious Zionist political party, the National Religious Party. And I remember his, his eldest daughter, who now unfortunately died prematurely, but she used to come back from activities within the youth movement that they have, she would come back in shorts and she would hug and kiss her boyfriend in the entrance to our building. I mean, hidden a little bit, but today, I mean, you cannot imagine the girls in that movement with anything but the skirt that sweeps the floor and so on and so on, not to mention even even shaking hands with, with a boy or anything like that. So... And the one called religious Zionism is on the extreme pole of all of those changes. So, I mean, I think we're going to have to go back historically a lot to understand this, at least so American listeners can get, you know, some grasp of what's happened in Israeli politics over the last period. What we mostly see is, you know, the eclipse 
already 12 years ago or more, of Israeli labor and the notion of a secular Israeli society promoting more economic concerns, as well as the nagging Israeli-Palestinian issues. And I know you go into all of that, but I think before we go there, let's just talk a little bit about this election and then go back to the forces that are represented in it. Because Netanyahu warns that he'll be back. You think that this is a fragile coalition. It seems that most of Israel was united to get rid of Netanyahu, that they could see through his sort of opportunistic antics that were there just to keep him in power. And he's been compared everywhere to Trump or Trump to Netanyahu. Could you talk a little bit more about that and how it came to be in this, what, four elections in two years and this outcome? Yes, you're right. But it's not most of Israel. It's half and half. It's just like like Trump. It's half and half. That's why uh, Netanyahu was on the verge of being able to form a government and the current government was on the verge of being able to form a government, except they succeeded and he didn't. And the only reason he didn't was that the most extreme right-wing party in his coalition vetoed the participation of the Arab party. That's the only reason why Netanyahu could not form a government. But so in terms of the Jewish-Israeli public, of course, it's about 50-50. So I think that the two possible scenarios with this government, one, that it will disintegrate, while Netanyahu is still leader of Likud, and he will come back. I think more likely the Likud eventually, and I think rather soon, will get rid of Netanyahu, because by now he's a liability for them. He is the only reason they couldn't form a government, because this new coalition is three right-wing parties, which naturally would go with Likud. Only because of Netanyahu they don't go to Likud. And by the way, the reason is that the leaders of all these three parties were close associates of Netanyahu at different stages of his career, including Bennett. Bennett was his chief of staff when Netanyahu was head of the opposition, and they all know him very well, and they hate him. I think there's no other word. So they were willing to do anything to get rid of him. But that's, again, that's about a 50-50 situation. This could go this way or that way. So I think if Likud gets rid of Netanyahu, which they have to do because he's only a burden on them, and I think, I assume it will take maybe six months, then these three right-wing political parties will join Likud, which is their natural ally, and will form a new government, which will have the support of maybe 70 members of the Knesset, out of 120, and there will be a normal right-wing government, as the division of public opinion in Israel warrants. What about Netanyahu's legal problems? The last time we spoke, you know, we were talking about, I think, the third election, perhaps the fourth, that was very clear that he needed to stay in power to stay out of jail. How has that proceeded? And will that have some impact on whether or not, you know, he'll be toppled from the leadership of the Likud? Yes, definitely. The, the trial is going on. They are still examining the first witness for the prosecution. And this will go on for at least, I don't know, a month or two. And of course, the more the trial advances, the deeper will Netanyahu be a problem. And I think this will hasten the time when we could will get rid of him. Because not being a prime minister, it's harder for him to fight this trial. And that's, like you said, this was the reason it was so important for him to stay as prime minister. Now that he's only head of the opposition, 
it will be harder for him to do all these tricks and shticks that he likes to do in order to at least slow down the pace of the trial. And the more the trial goes on, he's deeper in trouble and the better choices that they will get rid of him. Did he have immunity or does he have immunity while he's in power but loses it as soon as he's out of power? Is that what you're saying? No. no. I mean, he has an immunity. His immunity as a member of Knesset, that's all. But the immunity of the of member of Knesset applies only to actions that he performs in his capacity as member of Knesset. Then he has general immunity, which he can be stripped of. The, the procedure is he has to ask for it. It is not automatic, and he did not ask for it, because asking for it would be an admission that there is something there. So we did not ask for immunity. And the truth is that there was talk of, when he was prime minister, of passing a law, they call it in Israel the French law, that would give him immunity as prime minister as long as he serves. It's like an American president or, or a French president, but never had enough votes to get this law through the Knesset. And, you know, you started out, uh, Yoav, by saying how Israeli society is divided pretty much evenly. And this has been the case for a very long time, even though it seems that the issues that they have been divided around have shifted somewhat. And I want you to explain that in terms of uh, the increasing religionization of the society. But would you say then that the half of the society that has supported Netanyahu so long We'll look past any of his improprieties, his corruption charges. Do they dismiss them in, in the way that, let's say, Americans who love Trump don't care about his, you know, activities? They just like him? Exactly. It's exactly the same thing. I mean, it's a typical populist leader. His followers are completely committed to him. They either don't believe or else don't care that he's done what he's accused of. And they support him totally. So I don't think that his downfall will come from them. His downfall will come from his colleagues in the Likud leadership who know that they can all be in the government, they can be ministers, and one of them can be prime minister as soon as they get rid of him. And so the, the coup d'etat within the Likud will come from the leadership. It will not come from the wreck and file. The wreck and file, I think, will stay committed to Netanyahu for a long time. Let's go in a little bit deeper then into the nature of that support and and the role that religion plays. This is really the subject of what you've been writing about, the sort of advent of religious Zionism. And the kind of unlikely part of it is that it's nationalism. Of course, Zionism is a form of nationalism. And you have one side and the other each expressing I don't mean in Israel, but I'm talking about Israeli-Palestinian conflict here, that the opponents both represent a form of this religious nationalism. But let's go to the Israeli part. How did this come about, and how do you characterize it? You've started to say, Yoav, you've talked about the sort of two aspects of it, but let's go a little deeper into it. Well, there is, like we wrote in our books, there is a a long-term process of religionization, which begins in 1967 with uh, the occupied of the West Bank and Gaza and all the rest that was occupied by the main thing, of course, is the West Bank. And as it becomes evident that there is no peaceful solution to the conflict with the Palestinians or to the problem of the occupation of the West Bank, people turn more and more to religion to justify it this reality, because how can you justify it otherwise? 
And it's also to overcome the insecurity that develops because people realize that uh, we're going to live in a situation where war is imminent all the time. And we just had uh, only 11 days, that's true, but uh, it was pretty, pretty traumatic for a lot of people that were subject to missile attacks from Gaza. And uh, so religion gives them uh, some kind of, like always, religion gives them some kind of, of counsel and some kind of refuge from this uh, deep insecurity. This is what strengthens uh, religious Zionism is on its way to become culturally hegemonic, which doesn't necessarily express itself in votes in elections. So, because their vote in elections has been more or less stable around 10% plus minus of the Knesset. And this is where it is right now too. But in terms of the way people see the world, the way people uh, see the issues is more and more consonant with the religious Zionist outlook. And Bibi's supporters, first of all, his part of, of his most, of his tonic supporters are the ultra-Orthodox. The ultra-Orthodox political parties are completely, totally committed to him. And then there are the people who are called traditionalists, who are somewhat religious, but not fully observant. Typically, these are uh, what is called now Mizrahim, in other words, people whose families came from the Muslim countries. And they form the bulk of Phoebe's popular support. So what's interesting about this is that, you know, you mentioned in your article that was in Merab that this process, yes, was very long and that it, uh, one of the ways that it became more acceptable, this form of religion in a society that was more secular previously, was that... Uh, well, some, somewhat secular, I'd say. Yes. I don't think well, it was ever really secular. Well, right. And of course, it's a religious state. But on the other hand, it was not a a society known for its deep religious practice for the majority. But but you say in your article that under several Zionist religious education ministers came into place and changed the nature of public education to insert more religious quality into it, and that Neftali Bennett was one of them. How did that go over? And was that a sort of simple process? And, you know, when you and I spoke over one of the last three elections, at that point, Netanyahu's ability to govern depended on him uniting with Avigdor Lieberman's far-right nationalist party, but he was an avowed secularist, as so many of the Russian immigrants were, and that was a breaking point for them. Can you sort of explain how the hegemony of the religious side has come to be in the forefront? Well, I think that the deepest reason is uh, this fact, this phenomenon, that there are hardly any really secular Jews in Israel, because What is the justification for Zionism if not Jewish religion? So people tend to feel that the more religious you are, the more legitimate you are. So when Bennett is the main one, he's not the only one, but he's the main one who introduces a very, I would say, fast and deep religionization in the educational system, people don't really object to it. There may be murmurs of some kind of satisfaction, but people were not really organized to fight it because there's always this feeling that there's this inferiority complex of the supposedly secular 
in front of the religious. So, you know, so what's wrong with a little bit of uh, Yiddishkeit, you know, in, in the school system? So what's wrong if the, if the kids know this prayer on this prayer and, you know, this page of the Talmud or that page of the Talmud? I mean, after all, uh, we are Jews and this is a Jewish state. So people, there is some resistance, but it never crystallized to anything effective. And this process is going on and on and on. Right. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more then about how this form, you know, replaced the labor Zionism that had existed for so long in Israel, and which also created a sort of polarized society between labor and more liberal outlook and Likud and the more religious nationalist ones, both of which, though, had more or less a similar position with regard to the Palestinian conflict. Well, uh, labor since 1967 had two major problems which really brought it down. First of all, in 1967, they could not decide of a course of action with respect to the newly occupied territories. There was a deep split within the Labour Party. So the result was paralysis and inaction. They didn't decide what to do, so religious Zionists took the initiative and started settling in the West Bank with all kinds of labor dignitaries, including uh, Shimon Peres, who later on became this you know, Nobel laureate for peace. But he, a week from Shimon Peres, a week from Rabin, a week from Igal Alon, and they started establishing settlements. When labor lost power in 1977, there were only 5,000 settlers in the West Bank. So, but still, the process began. The second problem labor had was the shift to neoliberal economics, from corporatist economics to neoliberal economics in 1985, which completely shattered the social economic basis on which labor's power rested, which was the Istadrut, which is usually translated in English as a labor union federation, which is not, it is not a labor union federation. It was an, what is called an umbrella labor organization that at its height, owned 25% of the economy, employed 25% of the industrial workforce, and provided uh, secure jobs with relatively decent salaries and a whole host of social services, most importantly healthcare. At its height, it provided healthcare to 70% of the population. Now, in 1985, labor itself started the process of dismantling this whole structure. So with their own hands, destroyed the social economic basis of this plus what happened with the West Bank and Gaza. And at the beginning, Sinai too, after 67, it began in 1967. This was the reason that labor lost its power and lost its cultural hegemony. Can you talk a little bit more, because now you've introduced it in all of your analysis previously, uh, Yoav Pelig, you have talked about the economic basis of the so-called peace process, and which was always a fraud in your view. But can you go back now a little bit, because what we're seeing right now at this present moment, and it's not just in Israel, but in the world, is a rejection of the neoliberal economic model, which is seen to promote widespread inequality. That's also happened in Israel, maybe not as accentuated as other places because there's still somewhat of a social safety net, at least for Jews. But how is that reflected in the current political lineup in Israel, and especially after this almost year and a half of the pandemic? Well, 
First of all, Israeli politics in the last two or three years were only uh, around one issue, Netanyahu. They were either for Netanyahu or against Netanyahu. Everything else receded into the background. Now, Netanyahu's performance uh, during the pandemic was, I would say, mediocre at the beginning as far as identifying and treating the illness, the, the corona, but then excellent as far as getting the vaccine. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you know, Israel is first in the world in terms of vaccination. We are now completely moving around, completely free, and so on. So his record on that is, is very mixed. And so it depends which side you're on. If you're for Netanyahu, you extol the, the vaccinations. If you're against Netanyahu, you say, okay, the vaccinations, but what happened before the vaccinations? Why was the healthcare system not more effective in treating? Why, for example, when we started the lockdown, they allowed 12,000 12, yeshiva students from New York to come into Israel when New York was absolutely infested with corona, and so on and so on and so on. So on the issue of that, of the pandemic, also there's this, the same split you see Netanyahu's positive side or negative side, depending on, on where you stand on him personally. So all other issues, Palestinians, the economy, state and religion, and so on and so on, are all irrelevant now, or were irrelevant at least until this new government came in. And now we'll see what happens. And that's obviously the place where, you know, most of the journalists that we're seeing are talking about the hopes that they have for this new government, that because the new coalition, which you say is fragile, but nonetheless represents both far right and center, I don't know if you would call it center left, but at least centrist, more moderate, let's say, forces, that it will allow issues that have been plaguing Israeli society but have been ignored, like unemployment, like other issues that you could bring up, come to the fore. But then there's also the other main issue that we'll get to after that. But do you first accept that this is a possibility now and that this could strengthen perhaps this coalition, that they'll address these more pressing economic and social issues? And the Israeli economy was in a very good state before the corona. Unemployment was around 4%, which, as you know, is considered full employment. And now it's recovering very fast. In general, surprising as this may be, neoliberalism really benefited the Israeli economy after the first 10 years, which were harsh on the, you know, on the poorer sectors of society. Since about 1995, things have changed. And uh, the overall performance of the economy, as well as the situation of, of many, many people, improved. And that's also part of the reason for this, this very strong support for Netanyahu, because a lot of people are much better off economically, became much better off economically during these 12 years than they were before. So that's another reason. Now, as you know, it's, it's for a government, it's not so easy to deal with economic issues. I mean, there are very powerful interests involved. And the new uh, finance minister, the same of Victor Lieberman that you mentioned, whose you know reputation is uh, you know whistle clean. We all, we all know about. It. I don't want to say any more than that. He's now in charge of the public purse. He's a staunch neoliberal in his political economic views. He also controls, and this is quite. This is, I think, the first time this happened, or since the old days of Mapai, this is the first time that happens. 
His party also controls the Senate Finance Committee, which is supposed to supervise the finance ministry. So uh, what he will do is very hard to tell, and I doubt very much that he's going to do anything in that would move towards a more, uh, let's say, less unequal society. And what about, let's go to the Israeli-Palestinian, not just the conflict, but also the role of the Israeli-Arab parties or in the UAL, the what is it, the United Arab List that are now part of the governing coalition. This is a first, but you have people in the coalition who say that Arab Israelis should not be Israeli and that, you know, they may be citizens for now, but not forever. So no, that's not somebody in the coalition. That's the most extreme right called religious Zionism. They're not in the coalition. They're not, they're not in the coalition. They're not anything like that. Okay, so what is, but all right, that's good. So what does it mean though to have them in the coalition? Will it change some part of it? And, and the reason I'm asking, not just in general, but also there was an article, I think, in the New York Times that talked about, um, the Arab Israeli medical personnel that were considered frontline workers and heroes during the pandemic, but complained that once they left the hospital, they were humiliated and treated as second class, just as all Arabs are in the society. And the question then would be whether or not there would be some form of like recognition of their role in society. What we know is what happened the previous time that an Arab political party was part of the coalition, even though at that time it was kind of not really officially a part, but was a, a supporter from the outside. This was during Yitzhak Rabin's second government. And that was the best period for Israel's Arab citizens in Israel's entire history. Uh, so there's, there's reason for hope that the fact that this government depends, it absolutely depends for its very existence on these four votes, of Arab members of the Knesset, that the, the policy towards them uh, would improve. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that in the daily lives of Israel's Palestinian citizens, it doesn't matter that much who is in the government and what the government is doing. If they are viewed as uh, the way you described, and it's absolutely true, and uh, their, their presence in the medical, in all the medical professions, but also at the top, there are uh, hospital directors and uh, heads of hospital departments and so on and so on. But it's true when, when they leave the hospital and, and go home, they are just Arabs. So it's uh, hard to see how this, this attitude of the everyday person attitude towards them would change no matter what, what the government does. Now, you also have to remember that we just went through a period of mutual pogroms and lynches between Arabs and Jews, where the Arabs played a more major role against the Jews. And that also had a very serious impact. So a lot of people viewed the, the Arab citizens much more negatively than before these events. So that, that's also a factor. Maybe you elaborate a little bit more, Yoav, on that, because what we see from here is simply the Hamas rockets that were, you know, propelled and were certainly of inferior uh, might and weight compared to what Israel had against the Gazan citizens. But talk a little bit more about how this played out in Israel. When you, when we looked at news reports, you saw Israelis talking about Arabs in a way that was you know, so openly racist that it was even shocking to, to see. So what kind of lynchings took place? What kind of pogroms? There were, uh, there were you know, at least one famous case of, of an Arab almost lynched. He didn't die, but 
was very, very heavily injured uh, by Jews on, near Tel Aviv. And there was uh, at least one case of, of a Jew being lynched to death by Arabs in Lida. In Jaffa, which is more or less, you can say, the Arab neighborhood of Tel Aviv, or the neighborhood of Tel Aviv that is partially Arab, there was a famous incident where a Molotov cocktail was thrown into the apartment of an Arab a family by mistake by Arabs because they mistook them for Jews. So, and then there were also there were several synagogues that were burned down, and of course cars that were burned down, and there were mutual attacks here and there. The Arabs played. Uh, I mean, numerically, it happened more on the Arab side towards the Jews than vice versa, but it went uh, both sides. So that's a this is a trauma now, and uh, a lot of Jews would avoid Arab areas, which of course harms Arab businesses, which depend on Jewish clientele. Does this change the dynamic in any way uh, in terms of the willingness to, let's say, have any negotiation, you know, with the Palestinians? You mentioned that it hardens each population against each other. But previously, you know, we've talked about, and it's certainly in the articles, that Netanyahu needed Hamas and Hamas has also needed Netanyahu, that it galvanizes each of them in their own society. How do you see that now that this new coalition will be in power? Is it the same dynamic? Yeah, it is the same dynamic. You know, there's no such thing as negotiations with the Palestinians. There's nothing to negotiate about. I mean, there's no, uh, the whole issue of the two states and the peace process, all of that is long dead. So there's really nothing to negotiate. I mean, they, may, they can negotiate, you know, very uh, mundane kind of day-to-day things. But uh, overall, the conflict, there's no process of any attempt to try to do anything about the basic conflict, neither with the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and, of course, not with Hamas in Gaza. So that, that issue is really dead. I know that now the Biden administration says, yeah, we want you to stop. This is nonsense. Since... Uh, since the second intifada of 2000, this possibility died. There's no question. Talking about the two-state solution died. Two-state solution and, and any solution, because what we have is uh, we have a reality of one state which is being ruled and governed very unequally between different segments of that one state. That's the reality. And, of course, there is no uh, movement to change it except to make it a little bit more formal there's this whole issue of annexing parts of the West Bank, what is known as Area C, which Bennett is totally uh, in favor of. At least until now, it was totally in favor of. And we'll see if that happens, and so on and so on. But basically, no major changes in this setup of Israeli-Palestinian relations is likely to happen anytime in the foreseeable future. And do you see as separate the issue of Fatah's difficulties in maintaining its its governing role that you see Abbas postponing elections, that you get youth demonstrations there saying we're sick of this same leadership, we want more democracy? Does that have any repercussions in Israel? That it, Does it affect anything? How do you see that? Well, Israel didn't want them to have these, these elections because Hamas was shown to, to win these elections as it did the previous one. The previous one in 2006, Hamas won that election, but in the West Bank, they wouldn't let them take power. And in Gaza, since Israel withdrew, Hamas took power because Israel was not there to prevent it. 
So Hamas won the last election, they would, would have won these elections too. And that's why both Israel and the Palestinian Authority and the U.S. were interested in not having those elections. And they, so this is what happened. But the Palestinian Authority is an empty shell now. There's really not, nothing there. It's just, it's, it's a totally empty thing now. So do you see anything, uh, Yoav Pellet, other than a hardening along both nationalist and religious lines on both sides of this conflict? Well, unfortunately, no. I think that this is the dynamic right now, like you say, on both sides. On the Palestinian side, Hamas is getting stronger and more influential, which means also that people become more religious, because Hamas, of course, is an Islamist party. By the way, Hamas and the United Arab League are both sort of affiliates of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. So even though right now politically they were, let's say, in, in opposite sides of, of the political division, but basically they are they are part of the same larger movement of the Muslim Brotherhood. And, and uh, so religion is being strengthened among Muslims in Israel and among the Palestinians in the same ways as, as it is among the Jews. And how do you see that? You know, developing because this is a really bleak picture, Yoav, and it's of course one that we saw the triumph, I guess you could say, that Trump allowed. You know, that certainly published and and publicized was his success in getting other Arab states to recognize Israel, and just the, the dynamic seems to be hardening. And I'd like to get more of your sort of view about how Trump affected the situation, and now perhaps with Biden and then and this new government whether there'll be any change whatsoever in relations with the wider Arab world. Trump did, did, did a few things, of course, moving the American embassy supposedly to Jerusalem. I don't know. The American embassy is, is very close to us in Tel Aviv, and I don't see any uh, less security or less activity there. It was purely symbolic, but it was an important symbol. Trump was... Uh, Trump enabled Israel to make peace with countries it was never at war with. So that's also paraded as a great achievement. But of course, it doesn't, doesn't mean very much in terms of, of the real issues. So and I, don't think, I don't think the Biden administration is either interested or capable of changing anything uh, with regard to that. They, you know, they, they will do maybe like Obama. They will pay some lip service to the peace process and maybe will sponsor some kind of, of empty negotiations or meetings or discussions. But, I mean, of course, if the United States decided to go all out and force a settlement, it could easily do that. But uh, you, you know very well that this is, this is not going to happen. So it would be, you know, more blah, blah like before, but you know, nothing substantial will happen. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit more then about Yaw, because we have a few minutes left and I want to get a, a sort of wider perspective of the divide within Israel because you still have now the centrist coalition. You said that for the last several years, the only issue has been Netanyahu. But yes. the, is that the case that it was Netanyahu as leader of Likud and it was a rejection of 
Likud's policies or just the person of Netanyahu? What I'm looking for is some understanding of how politics, the wider politics of the situation in Israel, of the economic situation, of inequality, of labor, of all of these other issues, immigration, how does that fit in now? Does that sort of play into people's getting tired of Netanyahu, but doesn't get reflected in, say, support for the other parties on the more centrist side? Yes, the issue was Netanyahu personally. His his corruption, his corrupting of of many of, of the state systems, especially the ones that deal with law enforcement, especially the ones that deal with Israel. So, and and the clearest indication of that is that you see that in the current government, in the anti-Netanyahu coalition, you have three real very right-wing political parties. So they don't have any problem with with Netanyahu in terms of policy or in terms of ideology or in terms of uh, politics in general. They have a problem with the person whom they see, I think, correctly. It's really a very dangerous, corrupting uh, agent within the Israeli political system. And they were, like I said before, these were all, the three leaders were people who worked very close with him. They know him very well. And they realized that it is really dangerous to let him continue. It's not any dis- political disagreement. It's just a question of this person is dangerous for Israeli democracy, for Israel as a whole. He needs to be removed. This is the only thing that ties this, this government together. No major differences with uh, Likud or anything like that. Some of them are to the right of Likud. Bennett is supposedly ideologically to the right of Likud. The party headed by Gidon Saar, a former student of mine, by the way, is also to the right of Likud. Lieberman, you know, Lieberman is Lieberman, so it's hard to tell, but he's also very right-wing. So they have no problem with, with Netanyahu, either economic policies, policies towards the Palestinians, or anything substantial. It's just the persona, the persona that they know very well, and that they realize that it needs to be removed in order to maintain some kind of democratic, I would say, democratic uh, setup in the state of Israel. I'm glad you said that because that's that's clearly the issue. And Thomas Friedman was writing in the New York Times, you know, that, well, first of all, he compared Netanyahu and Trump and the populism of each, but that that has now come to an end. And he saw, I guess, the uh, recent explosion or the recent uh, bombing of Gaza to be similar in a way to or the events around it to be similar to the January 6th insurrection or riot in in the United States. But he thought that mostly it was uh, a ploy to prevent any further integration of Arabs into Israeli society. And I know you you agree in some respects with Netanyahu's overall look, but I guess the real question is how Israel fits into this wider far-right populist dynamic that we're seeing around the world that is, by the way, I think receding. But I'd like to get your uh, opinion. Does Israel fit into this context in any way? Well, I'm glad that you see it receding. Uh, (laughs) Not so sure, but let's hope. I think you see the same pattern. You see the same pattern in Israel like you saw in uh, with Trump in the United States, like you see in those Eastern European countries, like you see in India and so on and, and so on. So it's, you know, it's nationalist populism and it, it is based on a very um, kind of uh, on a dichotomy between us 
and them, them are the enemy. They are, if they are among us, they are traitors. And you know, every all the Likud members of Knesset uh, didn't let Bennett even speak his first speech as prime minister by yelling him traitor, liar, uh, and so on. So he couldn't, he couldn't finish his speech. So, and uh, the supporters also, it's, it's the same thing. It's uh, either you are with us, meaning the leader, the leader embodies the people. Whoever is with the leader is the people. Everybody else is the elite and a bunch of traitors. So, and you see this dynamic in, in, in all of those places and it goes the same way. So I, I think Israel is, is very much within this stream. I mean, also in the UK with Brexit, you see the same dynamic in, in a lot of places. And Israel is part of it in the same way. I mean, the issues are different because, for example, in Israel, there is no issue of immigration. Now, this, you know, miserable 30,000 African asylum seekers that the populace make out to be a huge issue, but of course, it's, it's not an issue. It's a tiny, tiny fraction of the population. And the economy is also not a big issue because the economic situation has improved for this for the same kind of people who like support the Trump types in the United States. The equivalent people in Israel, their situation economically has improved. So it's not that. It's the Jewish-Arab division and support for this leader. I mean, support is support is a weak word to describe. It's this total commitment to this leader, and uh, so it's very much part of the, of the of the general uh, right wing populist phenomenon that that we see in a lot of places. With the difference that in Israel it's, it's more religious based, and I think that's really important. But when I said it was receding, it's you know, so long as these populist governments that are anti democratic, increasingly authoritarian. Um, they do certainly, they got a lot of popularity among certain sectors of the population, but if they can't deliver economically, it can't go on forever. And that's really, in a way, how I see, you know, the divide in the United States. And I'm sort of asking, because obviously the labor movement is insignificant right now in Israel as it, as it is in the United States. It's been pummeled, even though there's lots of struggles. But um, the social saf- safety net must be an important aspect in Israel to maintain the support. You say the economy has performed better and its neoliberalism worked in a way there, at least for the population that supports Netanyahu. How has that worked out there? Because one sees here that healthcare was a dividing issue, that inequality was a dividing issue. And because the Democrats representing, you know, this sort of what liberal neoliberalism, however you want to talk about it, did nothing to ameliorate the economic situation, that created a base for the populist Trump to come in very much like Brexit, because these are the left behind, you know, as, as we well know. Is there any sort of similarity in Israel? How, in other words, can you, can you talk a little bit about that and, and within that, the role of the strong public sector? No, the, you see, the, the left behinds in Israel are not left behind that much. That's the issue. So because they really, uh, they benefited in, in the last 10, 15, 20 years from economic liberalization. It's, I think it's peculiar to this country. It's not what you see in other countries, but this is the situation here. And that's part of the reason they support Netanyahu so much. Now, I think Israel's luck is that the neoliberals have not succeeded in 
destroying the entire safety net so far. So, you know, even though the, the Histadjud, the Umbrella Labor Organization, was pretty much uh, destroyed, and now it's really a bunch of labor unions now, some of it, their institutions continue in one form or another. Most importantly, the healthcare institutions, which are not tied to it anymore, but they are still non-profit, even though the, the, the new liberals in the government wanted to make those, it's, these are HMOs in American uh, language. They wanted to make them for-profit organizations, but they've not succeeded in doing it yet. And because they are not for profit and because they are very effective in terms of providing health care and gathering data about public health, this is a major uh, incentive for Pfizer to uh, give, to, to sell, of course, for a very high price, but yeah. to sell Israel so many vaccinations because the data that they could get from Israel about the effects of the vaccination was better than they could in any other country. So you see, this is a, a remnant of the labor legacy, which so far the neoliberals have not been able to destroy. And uh, but in terms of in terms of other uh, social services, in terms of the public uh, sector in general, Israel is, is is following the United States you know, pretty closely. Even in healthcare, Israel is second to the United only to the United States in terms of the share of healthcare expenditures that comes out of the pocket. Of the people, uh, the clients, you may say, of the healthcare system, you, even with all those remnants and so on and so on. So, okay, well, uh, I don't want to get into more details because it's uh, could be boring. It's never boring, but what I'm really interested in is the way that I see what you're describing, Yoav, is that even though neoliberalism as a model has improved the economy and has won, you know, successfully divided, let's say, the population, even though it may not be the economics is not the real issue. But if they dared to, let's say, completely eviscerate the national health system in Israel, that clearly would have been a dividing line, wouldn't it? Or wouldn't it have some effect in breaking away support for Netanyahu and Likud and perhaps reviving? No. You see, the, the way they do it, in this country at least, is, is very smart. They do it in a way that people support it. You see, when they nationalized the healthcare uh, system, they, those HMOs, they used the fact that people were bitching all the time about, you know, waiting in long lines and, and clinics being uh, physically dilapidated somewhat and so on and so on. So people had a lot of resentment against these, these, uh, HMOs, especially the one owned by the Istanbul. So it was easy. It was easy to get through that, uh, whatever opposition there was. Now they, and I'll give you an amazing anecdote. They've been trying to to privatize the national uh, electric company, and now we have on television ads paid for by the electric company advertising the fact that it's being privatized. It's that it's privatizing some of its power stations. I mean, I it, it was hard to believe when I see it. You see, so they, they are they are publicizing their own destruction. Is an achievement. So, see, <laughs> people, uh, you know, there's a strong anti-union feeling like in the United States, like in many other places. People say, you know, these are historically the workers in this national electric company get free electricity. And that 
gets people mad. How come they get free electricity? The fiscal effect of that is nothing, but you know, makes people mad. So yeah, they'll privatize. The, the union will not be strong. They will not get free. free. But you know, it will happen. What happened everywhere when electricity is privatized, and I don't have to tell you. So uh, you see, they are smart. They get it through in such a way that it will not it will not encounter any real serious opposition. An amazing story. Uh, you know, I'm going to have one final question, and that is, given that Netanyahu is now out, at least temporarily, do you see this as a kind of status quo ante to Netanyahu? Do you see any change in the politics, or will it just be away from the personality but the same sort of policies? I think that the policies will stay more or less the same if for no other reason because the new coalition is so internally divided. So it was hard to see how they can... And, and by the way, in the agreement that they set up this government, they said we're not going to implement any policy that is not agreed upon by everybody, which means there's very little left that they could do because you will find very hard to agree on anything except very few issues. Yoav Pellet, thank you so much for all of that. And I'm going to encourage people to look for your article in Merup and also to get your book, The Religionization of Israeli Society, which really goes into explaining in depth how we've come to the situation that we have and that you have this increasing religious nationalist divide. Yoav Pellet is a professor emeritus of political science at Tel Aviv University, author of many books. And thank you so much. You're my go-to person for understanding this, the, both Israel and the wider conflict. Thank you very much.